Let's pray. Father, what a privilege to be able to come before you and worship you. We don't worship you in our strength or from a foundation of our good works. We worship you from a place of weakness and humility, knowing that you love us where we are, that you take our feeble offerings and you you do incredible things with them. God, I, I pray that you would do that this morning. Whether it's through our, our singing, our prayer, preaching of the word, or hearing of the word. God, that we would just lay ourselves at the foot of the cross. That we would just put ourselves in your hands. And say, God, whatever you want with us this morning. We are yours. Amen. So we're in Colossians chapter 2. And so far, the main point of every message has essentially been Jesus. And I don't want to spoil anything for anyone, but the main point of today's message is going to be Jesus. That's my outline. And the reason is because this is the book of Colossians, and Paul is exalting Christ. He's, he's dealing with the issues that are there for the church and, and the, um, some of the false teachings that are coming in. And he's dealing with wanting to encourage them in their discouragement. If they had any discouragement in the faith, he wants to build them up. He, wants to, he, he just wants to help them along. And the best way he can help them is to give them Jesus. And so he has done that. He said, you know, that, that Jesus is all things. He's before all things. He's the creator of all things. It all exists for him. He talks about last week, he says that, that Jesus has justified you, that God has justified you through Christ, that, that your sins have been nailed to the cross. It's been paid for. You are rooted in Christ. And he leads to this. And he's going to deal now with some of the discouragement that has been coming in from people trying to discourage them. So he says, look, you've been, you've been bought by Christ. You've, your sins have been nailed to the cross. God has justified you and made you righteous in Christ. You're rooted in Christ. Therefore, he says in verse 16 of chapter 2, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? 
These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So what Paul is dealing with here is that there are people who have come in and are, are preaching essentially a false gospel. Again, we, we touched on this a little bit last week and, and, and many other times in, in messages that in the early church there was this issue as, as Jews received Christ as the Messiah and as Gentiles were grafted in, these Jews who had spent their whole life obeying the law and, and following all these rituals and these laws, um, they, they bring these Gentiles in who don't know anything about these laws and the question of like, well, what do they need to obey? How, how are they grafted in to the people of God? And, and the people who were genuinely trying to follow Jesus and wanting to pursue God were also asking these questions. What do I need to do? What do I, how, how do I live? And so people were, were coming in, were disqualifying and judging people based on their adherence to these man-made laws and rules. And we've talked before about why we like man-made laws and rules, why that's so common in Scripture and why it's so common today. We like them because we like to be in control of our own destiny, right? Like we like to have measurable things. I want to know how I'm doing. And so much in Scripture is about our hearts and about intangibles. And so it's, it's just really hard to measure. And so we say, man, we know it's important to worship God, but that's so hard to measure, like, how do you measure if someone's really worshiping God? Ah, I got it. You come to church every week. So that's how we know. Or you raise your hands during singing. Or you act very serious when there's the preaching of the word. Or you, you nod during good points in the sermon. And so we, we, try to, we try to measure these things. And so we're no different, really, but that's what they're doing. They say, you know, we, we know righteousness is important. And so how do I know if everybody's being righteous? How do I know? How do I make sure that we're all being righteous? And so what they came up with is they say, well, these are the things that we think mean righteousness. So if you do the right things, and by the way, the right things are the things that I do and done in the way that I do them. Right? So that's what they're doing. They're saying, these are the really important things, and those just happen to be the things that they think are really important. And then, well, how do you do these things? Well, you do them the way that I do them. And so this is, this is what's happening to people. It's happening in the early church. It happened before in the, in the time of Jesus. It's arguably the biggest threat to the early church. Far bigger, by the way, than the Roman government and anything the government is doing to them. Far bigger than that threat is the threat of destruction that comes from within the church. And we know that Jesus felt this way because the strongest warnings he ever gives are to religious people who would cause others to stumble. In Matthew 23, Jesus gives the, the, this famous teaching, the seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. And it's harsh and it's heavy. And he starts it out like this in Matthew 23. He says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, 
The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And he goes on and he gives these warnings to them. And one of them is in in, in verse 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So basically what Jesus is saying, look, they're teaching the law of Moses. That's not the problem. The problem is how they obey it and how they then put this yoke on you. He says they, they, they bear up all these things and then they don't even help you. They, they place this heavy yoke on you and then they're not even going to move a finger to lift them themselves. And then they're going to stress the, the smallest things, the things that are measurable. And so they would measure out exactly 10% of even the smallest herbs. Meanwhile, ignoring huge things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. And we look at that. They, they, they stress these things that they valued and that they could do and that they could measure. And they ignored these harder to measure heart things, which were actually the real thing. And we so often look at them and say, man, they are the worst. Why did anybody follow them? Why did anybody think that they were holy or that they had anything to offer? But church, we do the same things. We all have these blind spots. We all define righteousness We all find ourselves in that spot from time to time where we say righteousness is doing the things that I think are righteous. And we ignore and miss bigger things. See if any of these hit home. You might be really big on controlling your tongue to not say foul language. But you have no issue with gossip. You believe righteousness means going to church and so you you judge the family that that goes um, to the basketball tournament instead but you have no issue with not serving or sharing in the work. You believe righteousness is in believing all the right doctrines. And so your litmus test with somebody is that they can answer all of the right doctrinal questions. That they can articulate how we are saved and and who Jesus is and, and what these different things mean. But you aren't so big on living out those doctrines as if they're true. Maybe you believe that righteousness is in memorizing the Bible because God's word is valuable and it's, and it's important. And so what we really have to do is memorize scripture. But you're not as big in obeying what it says or understanding why it was written. Or you believe that 
righteous parenting is, is keeping your kids in line and keeping them respectful. But you ignore the shepherding of their hearts. And all of these things start to breed judgment and we look at other people and we say, well, if they were really a Christian, they would do this or act this way. And we become the Pharisees just placing these heavy yokes on those for whom Christ died. I mean, I've said, I said several weeks ago to be prepared because as the election draws nearer and our country continues to have this division in it, I felt more and more convicted that we have to speak. If we don't talk about it here, then we are just leaving people to to get their understanding of how we are to think about these things from news outlets and from Facebook articles. And so when we come to political issues, we have these big blind spots where we value what one party says and we point out all the things that look Christ-like in it and ignore the things that are not Christ-like at all. And we ignore them from the other party where they are actually supporting Christ-like policies and measures. So I'd ask you, politically during this season, what have you valued from your party and ignored in the other? Like if you think right now, part of our division, especially in the church, has come in thinking that this political election is good versus evil. And it is not it is not even close. And so I would encourage you, this is just kind of an aside. If, you, if you're in that set where you think, no, this is clearly good versus evil. Clearly there is a side that, that God cares more about and then the other side is against that. Then I would invite you to come and talk to me. I would love to set up a time. Like we can talk over the phone, we can meet, whatever. And I will happily give you a list of the things that fall into each camp. I've had so many conversations over the last four years about this with people that I'm happy to do it. Because the reality is that both parties, both of the major parties right now have things in their agendas that are very much in line with Scripture. Not fringe issues in Scripture, but very core issues in Scripture. And both parties have things in their agenda that are very much anti-Jesus. That's the reality of living in a broken world. And we have to be careful that we don't start to take these things and say, well, no, no, but this, this is how we measure this. And so if you're going to be righteous and you're going to be Christian, then you're going to respond in this way. You're going to value these things. You're going to do this or that. You're going to vote in this way or you're going to function in this way. And we are no different than the Pharisees placing a yoke that is not of Christ onto brothers and sisters and discouraging them. And that's what was happening here. And it was miserable. So they make this definition of righteousness. And then what happens is they adhere to it through gritted teeth. And then they put that misery on others who would follow it. So so this is what's happening. They're saying, okay, this is what righteousness means. 
And for some of them, they're saying, so we're going to do it whether we want to or not. And so then when they look at other people and say, well, you're not doing it. You need to do it too. If, you, if I'm going to be miserable in this whole following Jesus thing, then you need to be miserable too. Does that sound extreme? Think about it. I mean, what happens when you do something that you don't want to do and you expect others should be doing the same thing? How do you feel towards them? You're cleaning the kitchen because the kitchen has to be cleaned. And you got a bunch of people just hanging out, laughing and joking in the next room. How do you feel about that? I would say that we tend to get a little grumpy and judgmental, right? And we know that, that, that that's because we don't really, we're not really finding any joy in this task. It's because we really don't like this task. We think this is terrible and it's miserable and I can't handle if I have to If I have to do this and be miserable, then everybody else should too. Think about it. If we loved this thing, we wouldn't feel that way about each other. I went to several, you know, we still were able to go to a few graduation parties. And my favorite and least favorite thing about a graduation party is all the food. Because it doesn't matter, like if I have to go to a bunch of them, then everybody wants you to eat the food, and it's usually amazing food. And that's not really good for me, but it's also awesome because you have this, just all of this great food, right? And what do, what do people almost always say at a graduation party? Please eat. Please eat. Wedding receptions, graduation parties, all the same thing. Please eat. Please grab a plate. Grab it. No, here, have, have more. We have so much food. Please because in our culture, we, we express love through food and abundance of food. And so please take more and more food. And they'll say things like, I, I, this last time I, I went to a party and they said things like, everybody's got to do their share. Come on, you got to do your part. We got we to eat this food. And the reality is I'm happy to oblige in that situation. There's not one part of me that takes that plate looking at this amazing food and says, oh, all right. Well, everybody else better do their share too. Everybody else better get a piece of cake because I'm not going to be the only one sitting here eating delicious cake and delicious food. No, of course not. We only become grumpy and judgmental towards others with the things that we feel obligated to do that bring us no joy. So if you volunteer out of a sense of duty, then you'll be tempted to be grumpy with those who don't volunteer. But if in volunteering you gain an intimacy with Christ as you serve alongside of him and you find joy in in bearing your brother or sister's burden, then the only thing you will think of, of, of others who don't do it is that you'll want them to share in that joy too. I've had people invite me to go do very hard works of service in very winsome ways because they were crazy enough to find joy in it. Hey, it's going to be awesome. We're going to go all day and we're going to lug boxes around and it's going to be fantastic. And I'm like, man, you really believe that's going to be fantastic? Because that's what it looks like to actually be following Jesus. If you give money and you avoid buying something that you want through just sheer willpower and you just give to the church because you know that's what good people do, and you're really disappointed that you, you sure would like to have that money back every month. It sure would make things easier, but you know this is what you're supposed to do, so you write that check every month. And so you avoid buying this other thing that you've really wanted 
What happens when you see someone else buy that thing that you wanted? You resent them. You start to wonder, like, well, are they, well, if they were giving, if they were giving like I am, they probably wouldn't be able to do that. But I guess it you know, must be nice to feel like you can just do whatever you want. I've heard that attitude so much. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. That was the mentality that was infecting the church. They were basically saying, this is what righteousness means, and, and I do all of it, and so you had better too. And that's how you get to be holy. And they take the yoke and they put it on those in the church. A yoke of self-righteousness and law-keeping and misery. And Paul is saying, don't let them do that to you. He's saying it to the whole church. Like, don't let this happen in here. Don't let them judge you or disqualify you. Which, which is another way of saying, that is not the way to righteousness. And so some will stop right there and say, right, that's why I don't let anybody judge me. That's why I don't put up with any of that religious stuff and I just, I believe in God and I practice in my own way and I do my own thing and that's why it's fine. I just live and let live and let everybody just kind of do whatever they want. But look at what Paul says. He doesn't say, don't let them do that because no one can judge you. He doesn't say, don't let them do that because it doesn't matter what you do. You do you, you you be whoever you want to be. You do whatever makes sense to you, however you feel about following Jesus. Just just follow your heart in that and everything's great. He doesn't say that. No, he articulates why what they're doing is wrong and problematic. He says it in verse 17. These things that they're pointing to, they are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. Because that's where growth comes from. And the head is Christ, in case you missed that. See, the Pharisees literally missed what was right in front of them. These people who were leading the church astray in this way were missing what was in front of them. But the Pharisees literally missed as they talked about the importance of righteousness and about honoring God while they dishonored God in the flesh right in front of their faces. Not, they, they were looking at their works to make them righteous, not recognizing that the one who makes them righteous is right in front of them. And that's what Paul says is the issue. The issue isn't these things. The issue isn't with Sabbath or with following these teachings or with worshiping or any of these things. The problem is that they're missing the point. The substance is Christ. The point is Christ. He is our law. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Him. Abiding in Him. And this is what Christ says. In Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He 
is the one who places this yoke and he removes the yoke of works righteousness and he replaces it with the yoke of righteousness from him. So as for food and drink and matters of that, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the well of living water. As for the Sabbath, I am your rest. Whatever day you worship, Paul would then say, like, whatever day you worship, worship, worship God. Whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. That this is the point. Everything that we do, everything that we obey, every act of, of service or obedience or discipline is all grace-fueled effort that is meant to point us to Christ and to help us abide in Christ and walk with Christ. The commands the Bible gives us are ways of connecting with Jesus, not ways of proving our worth. And so the Bible does say that we are not to neglect the assembly of believers, that we are supposed to come together, not neglecting to gather together. We, it's important that we are here together, that we are worshiping together. But why? Is it because Jesus wants a, a check-in once a week? Just to make sure that he's at least worth you giving up one weekend morning for? Or is it possible that it is to connect you with brothers and sisters in joint worship of God that will nourish your soul? Why does the Bible say that we should give money? Is it because God is saying, like, well, I gave my son, the least you can do is throw in a few dollars? Or is it because he knows that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, and that by giving away your money, you'll be free from its grip on your heart, and you'll learn that your Father is the giver of all good gifts, and you'll grow in your intimacy with him. So when you take this yoke upon you, the one that does all things to glorify Christ, you find that it is actually easy and restful and joyful. And this is what Paul is wanting them to steer clear from this other yoke. Like, don't let people judge you by these things. This isn't the point. They're missing the point. Don't miss the point. Don't settle for these ways that you have measured and declared righteousness, but actually go to him who is righteous. And so every action, everything that we do, we, we ask ourselves, is this glorifying to Christ? Is this loving to God? Is this loving to others? And Paul is, goes on in, in verse 20 basically saying, why would you submit yourselves to this other way of doing things? This big list of do's and don'ts by, made by humans, why would you submit to that? Verse 20, he says, if, the, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to these regulations? And then he says, these in verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So he's saying, like, you want to be holy? You want to be righteous before God? You want, to, you want to experience the life that Christ offers you? Then follow Christ. Why would you submit yourself to these silly man-made rules? Why would you measure yourself by those? Measure yourselves by Christ. Give yourself to Christ. He's saying, look, these things that they're doing, these things that they're trying to heap on you, they look holy. 
They look like righteous living. They have an appearance of wisdom. But the only thing those things are good for are promoting their own man-made, self-made religion and making you look righteous before people and making your life miserable. That's what they're good for. They're actually worthless when it comes to growing in righteousness. They're worthless when it comes to actually putting the flesh to death and living in the Spirit. And that is what Christ came to do. To give you abundant life by putting sin to death and raising you to life in the Spirit. So it's not that you wouldn't do those things. It's what is your aim in that? Where are your eyes fixed Paul says in Galatians 5, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand therefore, firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't put these yokes on your brothers and sisters. Don't receive those yokes from others. But pursue Christ. And again, that pushback of, well, that's, that's why I only go to church when I feel like it. I got it, Pastor Jay. I've got it. I've got this down. I don't let anybody judge me. I just go to church when I feel like it. I read the Bible when I feel like it. I serve when I feel like it. That's the easy yoke. No, it's not. That's just a different yoke of the flesh. That's just a different yoke that you put on people. And all of a sudden, instead of judging somebody for not coming to church every week, you now judge them for coming to church every week. See how easy it is to slip into that? Oh, I'm not self-righteous like those people. Like they, they treat, they're so legalistic about going to church. They go to church every week. They set everything aside to go to church. I'm not like that. See how subtle that is? How sinister? See, the enemy would have you use your freedom as an opportunity to destroy you. question is just who are you pursuing and who are you listening to you're called to freedom brothers only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself but if you bite and devour one another watch out that you are not consumed by one another Paul is very concerned about this in the church Don't use your freedom. The NIV says, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. So we indulge our flesh by our own man-made self-righteous works that we set up and we place it on everybody else. We indulge our flesh in that way. Or we indulge our flesh in saying, oh, I'm free from that yoke. I'm going to create this other yoke for myself. They both end in destruction. They both are harmful to our brothers and sisters. What Paul is asking us to do, what Jesus has asked us to do, what we are asking our church to do, is to not create our own yokes, but to take on the yoke of Jesus. The easy yoke of Jesus, and then offer that to others. Look at what he says 
in Galatians 5, right there. Use your freedom. Don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Use your freedom to become a servant. That doesn't make any sense. If I'm set free, why would I become a servant? Because that's what Christ has done. And we don't always like that or understand that. I'm not going to go into I don't have time to really dig into 1 Corinthians 8. But you can read that when they're dealing with um, eating meat and food offered to idols. And that was one of the yokes that was being placed on the early church. Can't eat, you can't eat this thing, can't eat this meat that was offered to idols because that's sin, it makes you unclean. And then others were saying, no, 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 we're free to eat whatever we want. He says, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So you have this debate, can we eat meat or can we not? And basically what Paul concludes is he says, we know that you can. God's made all things clean. We know that idols are nothing. We know that if meat sacrificed to an idol, that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. There's only one God. These aren't like other real gods that might think you're worshiping them. They don't exist. God is the only one who exists. And so if you eat this meat worshiping your father in heaven, it's totally fine. It's not going to do anything to you. And so people said, right. So now I'm going to go ahead and eat meat. And anybody who thinks they're not supposed to eat meat, well, they're not as holy as I am. And so now my new yoke is I eat meat all the time. I eat all the meat. And I look down on you for not eating it. And Paul says, no, no, no. In 1 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Well, wait a second. I thought it wasn't a sin to eat the meat. If you use your freedom to indulge the flesh and harm your brother or sister, it is sin. That's why all the time when people say, like, well, you're saying it's wrong to do this. Is it wrong to go here? Like, is it wrong? Should I not be watching sports then? Or should I not be going hunting? Or should I, should I not buy things? Is it wrong to do these things? Like, these are just things. Like, are you pursuing Christ in them? If you use your freedom to, to indulge the flesh, well, then it's sin. If it harms your brother or sister, then it's sin. And Paul says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat. Lest I make my brother stumble. Think about this. Paul was, was as religious as anybody. He couldn't eat meat. Now all of a sudden he's free in Christ to eat meat. I just want you to imagine. I mean, how many of you like steak? How many of you could imagine never being allowed to eat it and all of a sudden getting to eat it? Oh, that is amazing. I just taste it right now. He's free to eat it. He can eat it anytime he wants. And then he says this, if that makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat it. 
See, the world doesn't function that way. Our world says, if it's my right, then I seize it. And if anybody tries to take it from me, I will fight to keep it. But the Bible says, I will gladly set down my rights, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul's saying, eat or don't eat. Love Christ and love your brother and sister. Church, we live in a country where we think the point of having freedom is so that I can do whatever I want, whatever sounds good to me. And nobody can tell me differently, but the gospel is countercultural. It's Christ who sets you free. And he has set you free to serve others. So use your freedom to abide in Christ and love your neighbor. That is so much better. Paul says, finishes that section in Galatians in 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So I'm going to have Robbie and Jason come up. But I just want to finish with this. He's going to go in and we're going we're gonna to pray together. But I want to just finish with this. What does that look like then? How do we encourage one another? How do we protect our church from falling into this? How do we make sure we are not placing this yoke and falling into these traps? We're supposed to bear one another's burdens, not heap them on each other. So maybe you know someone right now, and these are just some random things that popped in my head this morning. Maybe you know someone right now who's struggling with addiction. They don't need more lectures on why it's destructive. They don't need more lectures on why it's displeasing to God. They know. What they need is someone in the trenches with them who will point them to Jesus. Or maybe you have a person who's struggling with their prayer life. I hear all the time from people like, I just struggle in my prayer life. We don't need to say to them then like, well, I mean, I get up at 4 a.m. every day to pray and I have these amazing experiences. Instead, let us say, do you realize what prayer is? The creator of the universe meets you through Jesus and you and I get to approach him in our, in our weakness. Like, let's, let's do that together. What time do you want to get up? What time do you normally get up? What if you got up 15 minutes earlier? I'll get up with you. We'll text each other. And let's just, we'll spend that 15 minutes in, in prayer. We'll call and, and pray over the phone together. Let's, let's do this together. Or you see some young parent who's struggling with their kids and their kids seem to be wild and you, and you have that tendency to look at them and be like, well, they can't, shouldn't be letting them do that and shouldn't be letting them talk like that and do these things. What if instead we just came alongside of them and got to know them and got to know their kids and became an influence in their lives and helped them? There's so many things. I want us to go just into a few minutes of, of prayer and just consider these things together. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to see what you want us to see this morning. God, right now as we just come before you, just give a minute, I pray that our congregation, that together we would hear your voice and listen to your voice. God, where, please convict us right now, God, where have we been placing a yoke of righteousness of our own making on ourselves and on others? 
Father, forgive us for this. And Father, would you reveal to us right now through this, what does it mean that your yoke is easy? How, how can I take those things and actually turn them and, and pursue you through those things? How can I pursue Jesus? Father, would you, Holy Spirit, would you reveal that to us now? Father, I pray that you would reveal to us, bring to mind someone that we, you are calling us to share this easy yoke with. Who, Father, who do we need to come alongside and bear their burdens and offer the easy yoke of Jesus? God, in your mercy and kindness and grace, would you empower us to walk rooted in Christ, pursuing Christ, offering Christ, enjoying Christ, abiding in Christ today and always. Amen.